and it is to make something out of nothing. Created from nothing that existed before. God pre-existed everything. He made the universe for us. That verb in Hebrew is only used with God. Nobody else does that. It's the only, only thing that's ever associated with it as a subject is God the We're going to talk a little bit about worldviews, and then we're going to talk a little bit about evolution and the extension of biological evolution in other areas, and then we'll get back to the Bible, I promise, because one of my goals this morning is to convince you and encourage you that creation is talked about in the Bible lots of places besides Genesis. It's all the way through the Bible. There are verses in Revelation that talk about creation, the angels praising God. So worldviews. What is a worldview? It's how you view the world and your place in it. It's, it's what is in your mind, your preconceived things about, why am I here? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Is there a God? Those kind of things. You have those in your head, and that worldview that exists in your head might be one of these six. You have one. You may not know it, but you have one. It might be one of these six, it might be some variation, some combination of these six. I'm really only going to talk much about two of them, but there's a very good book out there by this guy named David Noble called Understanding the Times. I strongly encourage you to, it, it'll make your head hurt, okay? There's a lot of stuff uh, in the book. Uh, he talks about all that list of things on the bottom. He goes through the ten disciplines at the bottom, fields of study, history, law, ethics goes through all of those and said, if your worldview is this, what do you believe about that? And he's not talking what he thinks it means. He's quoting from other people and walking through what all that is. So it's a great book. If you're a student headed off to college, uh, strongly recommend going through that and understanding what it is. In fact, one of the things that his organization does is run summer camps that run for two weeks that walk, talk about a high-speed train this morning, that go through all of that in two weeks. And they'll set you to understand what a biblical Christian worldview is and what a Marxist worldview is. About some, some universities are up to 90% of the professors actually are Marxist. That's their worldview. And they don't hesitate to share that worldview with others, their students. So before you head off to college, I'd encourage you to understand what your worldview is and what other worldviews are. So we'll talk briefly this morning about biblical Christianity and a little bit more about that one. But the point of this chart is to say that your theology, if you're, if you're adhering to biblical Christianity or a theistic evolution person, could be also theist, your biology would be creation. All these other ones go to evolution except the Muslims, they hang out with us and they do believe in a creator that made everything. So we're talking about evolution several times now. What the heck is it? Uh, evolution has been around since the beginning of time. But the guy who made it popular in recent days is Charles Darwin, born in 1809. Got a degree in theology, was a medical student for a while. He wasn't a very healthy guy, didn't actually finish medical school. His grandfather was a physician. He came from wealth. So he had to figure out what to do with his life, and he got offered the chance to be the scientist that traveled around in a ship called the Beagle and did a bunch of research for a couple years, came back and made some conclusions about what he observed in the Galapagos Islands. He saw lots of different types of birds finches, other things, and he saw what he observed as variations within the finches. 
And he extrapolated that to say, wow, life could have started as something very simple, and it could have grown all the way up to all the complex things that we have now. That's pretty much what Darwin's idea of evolution was. Even that idea and the idea of natural selection were not original with Darwin, but after 30 years of pondering, and he finally published the book in 1859, and the title of the book was Origin of Species by Natural Selection, and a subtitle which most people have never heard, The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And I don't include that to say that Darwin was a racist. I don't think he was any more racist than anybody else in the time that he lived. I include it to show that that subtitle and some of the content of that book and certainly some of the content of his other book called The Descent of Man were used by others who were already racist to justify some heinous acts that occurred in the late 1800s and 1900s, early 1900s. The book doesn't actually identify a means by which new species or new kinds come to be. He uses natural selection. There's, I, I don't think you'd find anyone today who is an evolutionist who would say natural selection is how new species come to be. There's several different varieties of evolution today, but none of them really cling to that as the way new species come. Natural selection is, I'm sorry. Oh, that was good. We have to get back there now, sorry. Natural selection is the mechanism by which the fittest survive. We talk about survival of the fittest, right? That's part of what evolution talks about. Mechanism, uh, natural selection is that mechanism, but it's not how you get new species or new kinds. And there are various ideas for, in evolution for how that happens. As a special creationist evolutionist, I would tell you it doesn't happen. Genesis says seven times when God made a kind, they reproduced after their kinds or according to their kinds, depending on the translation that you're reading. So when I read the Bible, I see it saying doesn't happen. New kinds come when God makes them, and that's the only time they come. But an evolutionist would say, from the simplest form, molecules, all the way up to man, all of that was progression. So sorry for the longer discussion of that that I wanted to have, but just wanted people to understand what the claims are for biological evolution. So why is Darwin so famous? If other people had talked about natural selection, if other people had published about things that fall into the branch of evolution, in my opinion and the opinion of many others, including this guy, Jacques Barzun, in his book, Darwin published at the right time for people to grasp it and say, I like this idea. I already had my idea. It becomes a justification for me to go forward with my idea. Clearly, both believers and unbelievers in natural selection agree that Darwin had succeeded in an orthodoxy or a method of thought, a rallying point for innumerable scientific, philosophical, and social movements. So people who already wanted something to happen used Darwin to justify what they wanted to do to move forward, the time was right for them to grasp at that theory and move forward and claim, I don't need God. It's important to notice the difference between variation within a kind, which most special creationists would accept. When you get the virus next year, even though you had the flu shot, and that virus showed up from a change that happened within that kind, within that species, special creationists don't deny that that happened. We deny that new kinds come from variation within kinds. The Bible clearly states, as I said, that we reproduce after our kinds. When a bull breeds with a cow, you don't get a bat. Don't think that happens. They reproduce after their kind. And evolutionists don't believe that either, although punctuated equilibrium comes pretty close. They believe that there are intermediate forms that eventually come out to be stronger, and by natural selection, you get a new species. That's what 
a Darwinist or a neo-Darwinist view. So the part that I'm concerned about this morning, I don't really want to talk about evolution anymore in the biological evolution sense, but what happened was evolution spread quickly to other branches of science, and that really got ugly. The premise is that things are getting better. That order comes from disorder. That's what evolution says, right? I started with simplest life form, and I went all the way up to the complex form that's me and gorillas, fish. Order comes from disorder. And that got applied to other fields of science. The social sciences, that's where it really gets dangerous. Psychology, sociology are anti-God or without God in the way that almost everyone teaches them these days. That's a dangerous thing since we're spiritual creatures. There is a supernatural influence on us, and the way that all of those sciences are taught today is they are taught without God. And without God, ugly things can happen. Germany, Spain, other nations in Europe, if you go back and read the stuff, justified their actions in overcoming other people groups by Darwin's theory. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't have done it anyway, but they certainly justified what they were doing and felt better about what they were doing because Darwin's books and Thomas Huxley, who was another guy who was a contemporary of Darwin, who was actually a lawyer but loved the idea of evolution, have openly recorded, go look it up, openly recorded statements that Caucasians are at the top. Everybody else is lower. Does that sound a little familiar for you guys who have read anything about Hitler? Hitler's book was Mein Kampf, which means my struggle. And in the book, he says he would live must fight. And the way he looked at the world is he was helping evolution along. The Aryans are the top. Let's get rid of these other people. They're just slowing us down. We should be moving forward, and they're in the way. Read it. Don't take my word for it. Go read the books from the time. Secular humanism. So there is an organization called the Secular Humanist Organization. It's existed for a very long time. But the first time anything formal got written down was the first, the first Humanist Manifesto in 1933. And there have been a couple other Humanist Manifestos since then. I just want you to know what secular humanists believe. So the first tenet is that secular humanists regard, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. That's pretty clear. That kind of sets them apart from me. The second tenet in the Humanist Manifesto, number one, humanism believes man is part of nature, is emerged as a result of a continuous process. So why should you care? Number six, we're convinced that time has passed for theism, deism, so get God out of here. We don't think there's any need for God. There isn't one. Why would we think about him? And the reason that becomes a problem for you is because one of the signers of the first Humanist Manifesto was this guy named John Dewey. And you guys have probably heard of John Dewey. He was the leader, one of the leaders of the progressive education movement that changed the way we teach in our schools around the country. And it's really the reason why when you go to school today, you won't ever find what I had in my seventh grade science book was the chapter that started with God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now you won't find that now. In fact, it's hard to be neutral about whether or not a God exists. So when you say we're not going to talk about God at all in schools, that is a secular humanist view. You've removed God. You basically, you haven't said God doesn't exist, but by never talking about him, you've implied at least that God doesn't exist, and you'll find things that say God doesn't exist. If you want your children to have a biblical Christian worldview, that's your job. 
church is here to help. But if you really want them to have the worldview that I hope you have, that God created the universe and everything in it, it's your job as adults, parents, to teach them a biblical Christian view of the world. Dewey and Ryan find things that Dewey wrote that it's my job to change education to get God out of there. Okay, now, back to the Bible. Detour, sorry, just kind of want to give the background for everybody. Now we're back to the Bible. I asserted that creationism is talked about through the word. Neil did a great sermon series on the book of Job a couple years ago. I actually read through the book of Job myself recently, and some things were reaffirmed. So this is one place where we find God showing up and identifying himself as the creator. Job had a great life. He was one of the richest guys around, measured in livestock, goes through all that at the very beginning of the book. This is, I think, page 450 in your Bible if you're following along in the Homan Bible. He had lots of kids, seven sons, three daughters. He loved God. He loved God so much that when Satan showed up to talk to God, they had a conversation about Job. God says, consider my servant Job. And Satan says, yeah, he only loves you because you've got so much stuff. If we take all that away, he won't love you anymore. Took it all away, and Job said, blessed be the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Job did great. Then Satan comes back to God and says, but if you let me touch him, God said, well, you can't kill him, but you can impact his health. So he was smitten with souls from the top of his feet to the bottom to the top of his feet. Up his head to the bottom of his feet. So those of you who have dealt with poison ivy in the last two or three years can think about how miserable that was. Just imagine what it would be like to have festering sores from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. And to help him out, his three friends show up and tell him it's all his fault. They tell him, there's got to be sin in your life. God wouldn't do this if you didn't have sin in your life. You get 30 chapters or so of that, of Job being miserable, with his friends telling him it's all his fault. And then Job finally gets to the point where he kind of loses track of the way things are, and he says, hey, God, this is not right. You need to show up and talk to me. Eight chapters later, Job, God shows up. He shows up in a whirlwind. And out of the whirlwind, God says to Job and Elihu, who was the last guy who talked to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. Get ready for battle. I'm going I'm to explain things to you here. You wanted to hear me? You wanted to talk to me? Here I am. I will ask you, and you instruct me. And then what does he say? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So God's holding out his, his business card, his calling card, if you will, to Job, Job and saying, I'm the creator of everything. Who are you to say that I'm doing something wrong? Now, it's not a good deal for Job. Understand, we don't like it when we have trials either. But God is, God is God. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And he goes on for a couple chapters. We'll get back to Job here in a few minutes. He goes on for a couple chapters, and what does he talk about? He talks about creation. He talks about all the things he made and the fact that he's in charge of, of controlling all of them just to make sure that Job knows who he's talking to. His calling card. If God had a calling card, it would say, I made everything. And he goes on a couple chapters after he talks to Job. But we'll get back to Job in a few minutes. Creation provides a way for us to share God. I don't know that talking about the six days of creation is the best way to talk to your non-Christian friends. 
but it's certainly, if, you're gonna, if they ask you a question about what you believe, did God really make the heavens and the earth? I think the only answer to give is yes, and we'll look at a couple of examples where people used that as the starting point, and other people were impacted by it. Jonah, another cool book. I looked this one up just so I could give you the page number. 783. I want to find the book of Jonah in the Holman Christian Standard. Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, which was a place that was trying to destroy Israel where Jonah lived. And that would be a little bit like calling me when I was 25 to go to Moscow, because if you don't go to Moscow and tell them to repent, then I'm going to kill them all tomorrow. Well, would it be that bad if all the people, right? You know, Moscow was our enemy at that time, the head of the USSR. That's kind of what it was like for God to call Jonah. And Jonah said, I don't want to go. And he jumps on a ship and heads off in the other direction. And on the Mediterranean, he's with these sailors. And a big storm comes. And the sailors, who've sailed all their lives, recognize this as something really unusual. This is an ugly, ugly storm. Somebody must have done something wrong. Who are everybody's gods? And they find Jonah asleep in the bottom of the boat, and they drag him up, and they all draw lots, and the lot falls to Jonah. So they look at Jonah, and they say, hey, who are you? Where do you come from? What gods do you serve? And we have Jonah's answer. Jonah's answer is, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The sea we're on? I serve the God that made it. And if he made it, he controls it. And yes, it's all my fault. How do you fix it? Throw me in the ocean. They didn't want to do that, so they rode, tried to get to dry land. Couldn't get there, and what do they finally do? Throw him in the ocean. They wanted to live. And when they throw him in the ocean, what happens? No more storm. No more storm. And what was their reaction? When Jonah started out by identifying who he was and who was the God that he served by calling him the maker of the sea and the dry land, their reaction was they feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And so Jonah's proclamation that he served the God who made the sea and the dry land and controlled the sea and the dry land resulted in them being converted. And we're hoping Jonah or somebody else came back later you know, to talk to them and explain who the God of the Hebrews was. But that's really in there. It says that they feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This isn't a God that sits on my bench. This is the real God. In the New Testament, we have another example of somebody sharing his faith by using creation. Paul leaves Thessalonica. He travels down south. He gets to Athens. He's waiting for some other guys to show up. And while he's in Athens, God tells him to go share the word with people. So he's standing on the street in Athens. He's sharing the word, and some guys who were the philosophers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics, who all met at this thing called the Areopagus to talk about philosophy, to talk about new ideas, heard him talking and said, well, this sounds different. Hey, Paul, how would you like to come to talk to us at the Areopagus? So my analogy for this one is the Harvard Philosophy School calls you up and says, hey, come to us and talk about this new idea of Christianity. Tell me, tell me what you really believe. So Paul's pretty cool. He shows up. The first thing he talks about to get an attention getter going is he said, well, you got this, this altar to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you who he is. You don't know who he is. I'll tell you who he is. 
He's not one of these idols that you've got here. He's the God who created everything, including you. Starts with creation. Whenever Paul talked to Greeks slash Gentiles, that's where he started. He talked about the God who created everything. Repent because judgment is coming. Well, that would be popular with the philosophers. And Jesus died and was resurrected. Those are the three points of his sermon, which is way better than the one you're hearing this morning. Um, when invited to talk to the most learned men around, Paul started with God as creator. Now, they were with him right up until he talked about Jesus rising from the dead. And the philosophers couldn't handle that one, and most of them left. But we have this verse in Acts 17, 34, where it says, Some men joined him and believed. And so by Paul talking, starting with creation and talking to really smart guys, and this is what they did. They had slaves to do all the work. They sat around every day and talked about new ideas. When he presented his new idea, and the first thing he talked about in his presentation of what Christianity was, was creation. It's God's identity, and it's a way to impact others. Back to Job. After God spent a couple chapters talking about creation, he finally comes back to Job. He said, you know, Job said he wanted to hear from God, so he heard from God for two chapters about creation. Now he comes back to Job, and he says, hey, what do you think? Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice, I will add nothing more. So Job's response to God identifying himself as the creator of the universe, the creator of everything, the one who controls all things, and can do all things, is I'm insignificant. Now, does that mean that Job was worthless? No. It's a comparison to where Job stood and his questioning of God. Com comparison of where Job stands as a man, the created being, with God, the creator. Said, Yeah, I shouldn't have questioned what you were doing. So Job gets it. My paraphrase of Job's words is you're God, and I'm not. He got it. Job got that his primary identity was as a created being, created by the all-powerful God of the universe. And that is our primary identity as well. Through God's revelation of himself as creator, Job recognized who he was as a created being. Getting to the dangerous part, I'm going to share with you my favorite Max Lucado book. It's a children's book. It's entitled, You Are Special. And it talks about, really, self-esteem, but that's not the part that, uh, it's kind of the same theme of what I'm talking about this morning. This is very much in line with what's going to be discussed at uh, the Weird Animals this week. Um, because it talks about how special we are and why we're special. So, in the book... Max Lucado creates this allegory. And the allegory has Eli, the woodmaker, who lives up on top of the hill in his cottage, and he makes these little wooden people, and they walk around. And life in Wimmickville is I have a box of gold stickers, and I have a box of gray stickers. And if I find someone who can jump high, or that I think is beautiful, I stick a gold sticker on them. And if I see somebody that I don't think is beautiful, if I see somebody who can't jump as high, 
then I identify them by a gray dot that I stick on them. And the stickers stick. Except our, our, our hero, our uh, main character in the story is a guy named Punchinello. And Punchinello has a lot of gray dots. It's a tough life for Punchinello. We can't jump aside other people. So life's tough for Punchinello. <clears throat> but one day, he sees this girl named Lucia. And Lucia doesn't have any dots, and she doesn't have any gold stars. Well, that seems really attractive to Punchinello. So he says to Lucia, how come the stickers don't stick to you? And we'll read Lucia's response. It's easy, Lucia replied. Every day I go see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why? Why don't you go find out for yourself? Go up the hill. He's there. So Punchinello thinks about that for a while. Says, I don't really like the way things are. I'm not crazy about this idea of people putting stickers on me and them identifying me. I'm going to go see Eli. So he goes up the hill to see Eli, but when he goes in the door and he sees how big everything is in the workshop and how big Eli is, he's scared. And he turns to leave. And then he hears, Punchinello? The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello, stop. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come and let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You know my name? The little Wimmick asked. Of course I do. I made you. So Punchinello and Eli have a conversation. And somewhere in the conversation, Eli says, you're pretty special. And Eli laughed. I'm sorry. Punchinello laughed. He says, me, special? Why? I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? <clears throat> and Eli replies, because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. And as we get near the end of the story, when Punchinello is finishing his visit with Eli and he's going out the door, Eli says, remember, you're special because I made you, and I don't make mistakes. <laughs> I strongly recommend to read this to your children. Max Licato, you are special. Back to our sermon, our primary identity as people, Wimmicks, we are God's creation. We are special because he made us. Christina did everything she could to keep this short. Um, and I'll be done in just a couple minutes but I want to show you this. So I have a mind that works differently than most other people's. I'll warn you of that. I'm hoping there's at least a few people who can grab what we're talking about here in this, and it makes a difference to you like it's made a difference to me. We're back to Colossians chapter 1, and in him all things hold together. So we have up here on the top right Bohr's model of the atom. The nucleus of the atom has positively charged particles and neutrally charged particles. And we're going to use that, and we're going to talk a little bit about the fundamental forces that exist in the universe. 
So you know about gravitation, right? What does gravitation say? Any two bodies exert a force towards each other, inversely proportional to the distance between them. So to you, that means here on Earth, where Earth is the biggest mass around, when I drop this, where's it going to go? It goes down there past my hand, because gravity kept working even when I missed it. The second one is the electromagnetic force. That has to do with the ways that you can create an electromagnet by putting a current around something iron. It has to do with magnets that are already magnets like these guys. So gravity wants to take this guy down, but there's a competing force. And if I get this close enough, then the force of electromagnetism will make it go up, not down. So does it bother you at all that when you hear about electromagnetism, that like forces repel, but in the center of the atom, you have like forces? So I told you my mind works differently. The first time I heard this in class, and I knew that like forces repel, the first thing that I did was look down to see if I was still there. Because if like forces repel, then all the protons should fly out of the nucleus, because they're being pushed apart. Right? Took me four decades to get the answer. And I finally learned about the strong force. Uh, I have two others up there, electromagnetic and electroweak. So most scientists today agree that electroweak is just something that happens at the atomic level that really is the same force as the electromagnetic. We're going to talk about the strong force at the bottom. So the strong force is the strongest force in the universe, but it only works at really close ranges. If you care, and you probably don't, there's these little things called pions, which are incredibly short-lived particles that go back and forth between the protons when you get them close enough. But the question you have to ask is, if you, the entire room, the entire Earth, our entire solar system, the entire universe is made up of atoms, and as far as we know, that's the way it is. Atoms are the same everywhere. All the elements are made up like that, and the positive charges stay together in the nucleus. Somehow, they all got put together. If you didn't believe that God pre-existed, and you believed that matter pre-existed, and all the protons, and all the neutrons, and all the electrons that exist in the universe were here, how did they get into the incredibly ordered structure that we live in today that looks like that? And my answer to that is God did it. If you have a different worldview, you just have to find a way to answer that question. And certainly there are smart guys out there who have theories for that, right? And you've heard of Big Bang and others. Big Bang and others. So, back here. Creation is a huge part of God's identity. When God shows up to talk to Job, what's the first thing out of his mouth? I made everything. If we speak out for creation like Jonah and Paul, we can impact others. You have to be you know, pretty intelligent about how you do that. But if you get asked the question, are you a creationist, do some research. Be ready to give the answer. We are God's creation. He knows your name. He knows exactly who you are, and that is your identity. And that should make you feel special. We are not an accident, and the universe is not an accident. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thanks for the chance to be here today, to worship you, the one who made everything. We pray, Lord, that uh, as we go from here and live this week, that we'd be ready to share your love with others, that we would be uh, astounded 
by the fact that you, the creator of the universe, love us. Thanks for the chance to be here together today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.